One minute of screen time per episode. I'm Brett Stillo of Five Minutes of Trouble and Five Minutes of Banzai, and I'm on the 20th Century Limited, traveling north by northwest to Chicago with my good friend and co-host, Josh Horowitz. (laughs) Choo-choo. Choo-choo. How you doing, Brett? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, You know, I just had to say goodbye to Cy Coleman. He's taking another break. Thanks again, Cy. Uh, a little crowded to get that piano in the club car, but it's working for us. Are you enjoying the train ride? Yeah, yeah, a little bumpy from time to time, but they uh, they serve good drinks if you they, don't mind certain vegetables in it. It's the good drinks, but ridiculously tiny glasses. But we'll talk about <laughs> that true. perhaps in the future. But it's also also good company because joining us on this ridiculous imaginary train ride are two uh, ridiculous real people that we love working with. Uh, Sid and James of the Reels and Wheels podcast. Gentlemen, are you enjoying the train ride? Well, the Oldsmobile's in the shop. The Spitfire's uh, shifter is in pieces right now, and the the Firebird needs uh, some valve seals. So the train is a good alternative for me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. All of my cars are working, but I'm still happy to be on this train ride with you, and I have no unpaid parking tickets. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. The sky's the limit. And we'll be in Chicago, I think, by Thursday. So we're, we're set here. We're set here. So, gentlemen, uh, this is Minute 47 of 47. North by Northwest. Uh, our minute starts with those uh, ticket takers, neither one who looks like Harrison Ford, but that's their problem. Uh, they're checking their notes in front of a very prominent door that says bathroom and ends with Roger Thornhill looking at a menu uh, while he's wearing sunglasses. So let's get to it. Uh, we start this minute. Yes, we have these two uh, train conductors obviously sort of standing in front of a bathroom door. And what, what I will ask you, gentlemen, in this scene, this, this is, I would guess, a gag because the, the, the bathroom is in the foreground. Uh, you know, the, the ticket takers leave and Her- Cary Grant comes out of it. And at exactly he, the right time. At exactly the right. Somehow he knew that they were gone. I guess he could hear them breathing. But uh, how did he know? How did he? Well, he's Cary Grant. He just knows these. He's Cary Grant. What do you got? Yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking. You know, if if there's a peephole, that would be awkward. <laughs> That's super <laughs> awkward. <laughs> but you know, he exits with the sunglasses, so maybe that gives him added special powers. It's rather Kryptonian. What you didn't see was while he was in the bathroom, he rolled a natural 20 on his detect conductor roll. <laughs> wow. It's a skill that uh, doesn't get played too often. Wow. Some things you don't know about Cary Grant. Huge nerd. Wow. Uh, probably. He just couldn't come out back then. I just... Now I want to play Dungeons & Dragons with Cary Grant. I know it's been missing in my life. <laughs> but, uh... No, what I wonder is... this. Yeah, this seems like it's a gag. Uh, do you guys feel like this gag would have landed a lot bigger in 1959? You know, bathrooms and showing bathrooms in the year 1959 was pretty much verboten by the censorship board. So I, w- I would imagine this is, 
maybe a little daring, a little risque, and, you know, Hiscox sort of pushing the boundaries of good and bad taste. I mean, it's... I was surprised with the word toilet, frankly. You know, in in Europe, when you go to Europe, it is a little shocking as an American for the first time you hear someone say, like, oh, I need to use the toilet. But in America, no, we don't say that. We say, I need to use the restroom. It's like, oh, yeah, what are you doing in there? You're, you're taking a nap. You're, you know, <laughs> just going to lay down, put your feet up. No, no, you're going to pee. And, and it's fine. <laughs> Everyone does. And in Europe, they're a lot more mature about this sort of thing. But apparently, we were fine with calling them toilets back in the 1950s. And uh, I don't know why we moved away from that to have restrooms. But here we are. Well, American sensibilities. You always mm-hmm. have to avoid saying the real thing, at least back in 1959. I think America was, was deeply hurt, injured, damaged over the Kennedy assassination. And something about the word restroom gave everyone calmness and solace. As the turbulence of the 60s increased, bathrooms became more restful. Wow. Hmm. That was epic, Brett. Yeah. 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 Did a thesis paper on that in college. Very proud of it. So, <laughs> well, I, I have a note about this scene. Uh, you know, the, the, this would be a good place where there would be an unused scene uh, where maybe if Roger gets out of the bathroom and as soon as he gets out, the passengers now all scream, finally, and they madly rush for the only bathroom on the train. That's good. That's good. Again, I, I wonder, though, if that would, you know, the censors back in 1959 would would wag a disapproving finger at that there's a, there's a greater issue here of uh you know in psycho we had we had uh hitchcock using chocolate syrup for blood uh <laughs> I, I don't know where that leaves him and trying to figure out what to use for duke uh red velvet cake maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I feel this is this is hitchcock kind of tweaking things and uh, his his british sense of humor Carrie's been in the toilet for a long time. <laughs> That's Carrie Grant in a toilet wearing sunglasses. I could, you know, that that's that's he probably shot a a, a promo for this movie that, that they didn't use, standing in front of that toilet, being, "I'll bet you want to know why Carrie's in this <laughs> toilet." <laughs> America wants to know. America wants to know. Well, I just came in there to take a rest. <laughs> and that's how we got the term restroom. Restroom. Roger Thornhill's been on the run for at least 24 hours. He's probably exhausted, you know. He, he pro- maybe he did need to rest. That's what he's been doing in there. He napped. So, uh, so from there, we see, you know, Roger uh, exit, and he sort of heads... Uh, towards the back of this very cool club car. Very stylish, by the way. You know, if you just look at the, the design and the bar in the back, this is, a, this is a cool little joint. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've just been looking at some pictures of, like, a modern Amtrak train, and they just look so grim and industrial. It's, I don't know, there's almost sort of like a, a, a Ridley Scott used future kind of quality to them. Yeah, atmospherically speaking, like it was really interesting just watching this minute and seeing something that just doesn't exist anymore. Like this classy, in a very upscale looking, uh, stately train room. 
It feels like if you went into that dining car without wearing a tie, you would be underdressed and be asked to leave. Yeah. Or they'd have a tie for you. They would have a tie for you, yes. But still, people would be talking. Yeah. Have you ever actually been to a place where they'll actually give you a jacket or a tie if you don't have one? I've seen that on TV and movies, but in real life? Yeah, well, there probably is, but it's the equivalent of if you go to a synagogue and you're not Jewish and they hand you one of those uh, parachute yarmulkes that that looks terrible. (laughs) Please tell me that in the 80s, there was like a, not a heavy metal band, but kind of a hard rock and bar band called Parachute Yarmulke. There there wasn't, but there should be. There Uh, should have been. We'll work on this. I think this is a project for 2020, the, the fictional biography, the behind-the-scenes of uh, Parachute Yamaka. Parachute Yamaka. Yeah, that's, just, that, that's a catchy one. That's a catchy you one. Just picture a, a, a Jewish James Bond, and there's a scene where he jumps out of an airplane, and he doesn't have a parachute, but he takes out his yarmulke, and then the thing inflates to a giant parachute. And the interesting thing about Parachute Yamaka was that only their bass player was Jewish. <laughs> we caught up with their bass player Sid to talk about the trials and tribulations of playing on the Sabbath in Parachute Yamaka. Sid? Uh, well, interesting trivia here. Uh, only Jew in Parachute Yamaka, and the only person in the band not wearing the Parachute Yamaka. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the no beard guy in CZ Top. Uh, <laughs> The no beard guy in ZZ Top. So, but meanwhile, we have poor Roger. He's he's sort of nervously going through the club car there, and we see him quickly shuffle that newspaper that's probably got you know his face on it with that big headline, you know, seven unpaid parking tickets. So everybody knows. <laughs> now, now coming up here is is something. You know, you, you watch one minute of a movie 20, 30 times, you know, you start to notice things. And uh, <clears throat> visually, it's a, there's a bit of an oddity here. It's interesting that we see Roger leave the exit the club car, moving sort of in a right-to-left direction with the camera sort of in the lower uh, left-hand third. And then in the next scene, he enters the dining room car, moving left to right cameras kind of in the same angle so it's it's a weird kind of a juxtaposition uh almost a jump cut but not quite it's just it's interesting to me it's just a minor thing it's two seconds but uh it it does become a little jarring and uh to me it, you realize even a guy like hitchcock would probably get into these corners where you have a technical problem of shooting in a very narrow you know train car set and then just having a deal with moving the character from room to room. And just it's it's interesting because, you know, I think any filmmaker just runs into that problem of, oh, how the heck do we shoot this? How does that kind of look? So, yeah, that that is interesting. I, I didn't think about that. But but yeah, I mean, they didn't have much space on this probably at all, even for a set. Yeah. That's a really good point. I have not been able to find anything about that that it looked real to me it looks really real i'm gonna i'm gonna guess it was a train set but you figure you know this was an mgm production i'm guessing they filmed it in culver city they probably had a lot of 
you know, maybe they were actual railroad cars that have been converted into movie sets. I don't know. Yeah. It, I'll tell you one interesting thing in looking at this scene and then looking at, you know, I looked at some photos of club cars on trades. This actually, for whatever reason, seems narrower than actual club cars and dining cars of the era. Um, you know, maybe it's just the angle or the lenses or something like that. But, you know, it seems really tight. Maybe that was a decision by Hitchcock to just make everything seem a little more claustrophobic and tense. Yeah, Hitchcock, Hitchcock never did shy away from claustrophobia. And I, I think that most of the picture we have of these classic train cars is from films and uh, and from images that were manipulated to make them look bigger. Hmm. Yeah, because figure, what was the last train movie that Hitchcock had done before this? Well, that would probably be Strangers on a Train, which uh, ironically doesn't have a lot of train scenes in it. <laughs> it it's uh, I saw tra- I saw uh, Strangers on a Strain about a year ago. <laughs> And, you know, I can't recall, but I don't think it, it has quite the elaborate scenes of, you know, going from car to car. This, you know, I mentioned this one uh, yesterday, but uh, The Lady Vanishes, which is set primarily on a train, uh, where, you know, they're going from car to car and it becomes a, a cat and mouse kind of adventure there. But, uh, you, you know, you get, there are numerous train sets, not actual electric train sets but sets movie sets in a, inside a train well one of the things that i noticed in this scene as soon as he gets into this uh this new angle is that we see some of the passengers sitting there and i was struck with the fact that it looks like queen elizabeth is actually dining there yes the the lady on the right <laughs> uh I, I i paused for a moment and just wondered uh what other tables she sat at and what other famous movies you know, once again, you know, we've been mentioning this in yesterday's episode. You know, we see the maitre d' with he's in a tuxedo. It's it's very luxurious. And, you know, you get the sense that the 20th Century Limited was uh, sort of a, you know, a, a luxury liner on wheels or on rails. Mm. There's something symbolic in this movie about these train sequences and the dining car, that this is an era that is about to go away and big time. Uh, you know, this was probably filmed in late 1958 and about that same time the Boeing 707 is uh, going into service with the major airlines and Mm. you know to me that aircraft that jet airliner is so symbolic you know uh, that is the last nail in the coffin for the railroads and you know that is the symbolic beginning of the jet set uh but here we have this, you know, I, I, I watched this scene and I wondered how many train scenes have been in Hollywood movies, you know, where Cary Grant's about to sit down with Eva Marie Saint. It's a wonderful scene. Uh, how many times did this get played out at 20th Century Fox and Paramount and Warner Brothers where we're going to do a train scene and we're going to have uh, rear screen projection? And, uh, you know, again, we mentioned movies yesterday like uh, Murder on the Orient Express, hit movie, but that's that's a train in a period piece. This is this is contemporary, but it's all gonna go away very quickly. You know, an interesting thing about uh, you know talking about how the jet set era was sort of picking up. 
you know, if you look at pictures and stuff of people who were traveling at the time, they were still wearing, like, suit and tie when they would go even on a commercial jet. I mean, all of that just sort of went away, I guess, as the 60s and 70s came along. And uh, I, I wonder what what caused that transition to happen? Was it just that it became so much more accessible that, you know, going on these were no longer such a big adventure? It was just like a, a equivalent of taking a bus? I think there there was a time where passenger rail travel in America wasn't Amtrak. And you had these different rail companies that you know, we're in competition with each other to offer, you know, better services and to, you know, provide some, you know, unique selling points and that kind of thing. And then not only that, traveling by car, you know, until the interstate system got, you know, got to be more widespread and cars got to be fast enough to use the interstate system. I mean, if your average family car, we talked about this on the previous minute, but you know, your average family Ford Falcon really wasn't that good at going above more than like 50, 60 miles an hour. Um, so as cars got faster, as the interstate got better, there just, I don't think there was as much of a need or demand to use a train. I think there was also actually a, a boom in um, moving goods and services by train versus people i think it got mm -hmm. way more cost effective and way more profitable for the rail lines to start moving you know things like coal and and cargo i've heard that when you're traveling by amtrak except in like the northeast corridor every other line or, or, or track the freight trains have right-of-way so you'll get delayed a lot because a giant freight train carrying a bunch of stuff is in the way and you know what? This is also where my college education pops in. I did take a class on history of American cities, uh, and uh, most a lot of the cities, a lot of cities were, when America was first coming up and the railroads were first being built, were railroad towns. So they were built around the, as because they needed a stop on the track, and the city grew around the stop. Hmm. As we switched from the you know into as we got into the mid nineteenth the mid twentieth century, there uh, railroad cities weren't. Uh, were adapting or weren't they weren't existing anymore and the tracks were in the way so a lot of these a lot of tracks uh stop i mean if you if you drive around here for instance you'll see a lot of tracks that go nowhere uh because the railroad just gave up on using them they were just in the way of development hmm. and then you know you take a drive around la which was one of the first major cities that was built around the automobile and not around the train and and you see the difference. You see the you know like the the expression the wrong side of the tracks exists because these towns would grow up around train tracks and everybody would live on one side and then all the industry would be on the other side and you didn't want to live on that side. So if you if you were poor you lived on that side. So that's where that expression comes from. So that so train railroad towns automatically had a slum from the get go. And in Atlanta, uh, where we have a lot of disused. Uh, train tracks and um, train depots. We use them to shoot movies. Uh, the Pullman Yard. If you ever see like a big, like market type area in a post-apocalyptic type of film, um, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at the uh, Pullman Yard. It was in the Hunger Games. It's been a lot of other movies oh, like wow. that. And then 
you know, Atlanta was a rail town, and to a certain extent, it still kind of is in terms of, of commerce and that sort of thing, but one of the disused tracks, they actually paved over, and now it's like a, I want to say it's like a 15, maybe 20 mile um, bike trail uh, outside of the city, and it's where a lot of folks that do like triathlons and bike racings go go to tr train because you get, you know, 15, 20 miles um, with no cars. Still faster than Amtrak. <laughs> yeah, way faster than Amtrak. So anyway, meanwhile, back to dinner. So Roger's, uh, he's still got those sunglasses, and there's that blonde we had the encounter with, and she's, she's beckoning him to sit with her for dinner. And the fact of the matter is this train is so classy. They have waiters that will pull out a chair for you when you sit down. I mean, you don't get that in most <laughs> like, nice restaurants in America these days. You know? Right, right, yeah. Definitely a different time. So in one of the most important moments in this film, Roger Thornhill turns to the waiter and says, I'll have a Gibson. Gentlemen, let's talk about the Gibson. Oh, my God, dude. Uh, yeah, I was surprised <laughs> when, like, a, a modern electric guitar didn't show up. So, yeah, tell me about this Gibson. Yeah, that thought did cross my mind. It, mine, too. That would have been better. Uh, this, this, to me is a reminder of uh, what kind of jerks men were back then. Uh, <laughs> like, here I am in front of an attractive woman. What should I order? Now, uh, listening audience, I guess I'll make the reveal here, because why shouldn't it be me? Uh, a Gibson, for those of you who have never ordered one, which is probably all of you, <laughs> is like a martini, except instead of putting an olive in the martini, they put an onion. Well, well, it's a pickled onion. A pickled onion. Oh, that makes it better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's pickle the onion. That'll, that's all. Then you're talking to a guy who hates onions so much that if you, like, mince it up into fine little pieces, I will find them with toothpicks and remove it from my food. <laughs> well, see, here, this is interesting because I, I didn't know this about you. Something we have in common, I am pretty much an onion hater myself. Mm. Not a fan of the onion. Certain special circumstances all, all cross the line, and I, I feel like I need to try this drink. I, I may regret it. I may have to, you know, write an apology to you, Sid, but uh, this concept of uh, uh, this little tiny white onion that's probably been anesthetized. It's, it's you know, it's onion-like qualities. It's, you know, it's that probably like... It doesn't fix the texture. I mean, I, I don't dislike onions, but I don't want two of them floating in my martini. Like, that's, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm not a huge martini guy, at least not anymore, but uh, I always thought a twist of lemon was much better than olives or onions. Look, I mean, there, there's only one way to explain this, and, and I'm sorry if I get bleeped over this one, but basically, <laughs> uh, we were at a time when Hitchcock could not allow Cary Grant to pull out his Johnson, stick it on the table right in front of her, and be like, take a look at that girl. So instead, take a look at that he's going to get a drink. <laughs> Impressive, <laughs> yes. He's going to get a drink with two fat onions in it, and then swish them around in his mouth and breathe on her. Like that's, <laughs> that's about as close as you can get to waving your schmeckle in the girl's face. And this is completely different from like Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo, where, where you know at three o'clock in the afternoon, it's like. Well, here you go. Have some brandy. 
Like, uh, I couldn't see Jimmy Stewart ordering a Gibson. Maybe Cary Grant is such a master of seduction that this is like a handicapping session for him, right? Like, he's like, he's like, all right, I've got this one. How can I make it difficult? I know, I'll order a drink that puts onion in my mouth, and then I'll still get her. The Gibson Challenge. I I still feel like I want to try one. I may regret it, and I, I I'll tell you what. When I do have one, and it turns out to be gross, I will publicly acknowledge, uh, you know, that you were right and I was wrong. Let's all right. We're if we're doing this. Let's do this. Let's set some parameters here. Uh, <laughs> you you're gonna get a Gibson, okay? Uh, okay. I, preferably video. I don't know if you got a YouTube, but 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 video of you drinking. Or at least, at least a live like next podcast live. You're ha- you're gonna have the Gibson in front of you. I want pictures. I want to see the onion in your mouth. Um, uh, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. You're right. You're right. Maybe by the last episode that we're gonna do, that would be the thing to report back. And and listeners, you're hearing it here. I will I will post my uh, Gibson adventure or misadventure, whatever the case may be, and I will uh, I will lay it all out, so to speak. Uh, that I, I accept the challenge, and uh, I know the job is dangerous, but I'm taking it anyway. The only thing left here is they, they look at that cute uh, New York Central Railroad menu, circa 1958. Yeah, actually, a little note I had here. When I first saw that blue menu, I, I saw the cursive lettering, and I wasn't quite sure what it was, if it was like you know, like a weird loopy path that the train was taking across like on a map. Or maybe it said, why, why, wow? You know, the the only other train movie that I can think of where people order food on the train is actually uh, the James Bond film from Russia with Love. And that's how he finds out that uh, his nemesis um, from the KGB, or from Spectre. Red Grant. Red Grant. As played by Robert Shaw. Yeah. yeah um, he orders... Uh, I think it's fish with red wine, and that's how he's found out. Exactly. Yeah, Connery has that whole denouncement, fish with red wine. I mean, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've, uh, we've all been talking about the, you know, this being sort of a blueprint for James Bond films. And I think from Russia with Love in particular, you get the sense of Cubby Bracoli and um, Harry Saltzman drawing inspiration from this movie north by northwest uh train sequence uh no crop duster but a helicopter attack uh you know i'd say interesting parallels with those two specific films yeah i mean this is this is a travel adventure movie we we go from new york to chicago we go out to the country um in in new york we go to mount rushmore i mean it's it's an American travel adventure mystery. It's it's a product of its era because uh, you wouldn't be allowed to do it today without making him a uh, scene where he's forced to take Rob Schneider yeah. along with him. <laughs> that closes out this minute. But uh, before we go, gentlemen, I do want to take a minute to talk about uh, the cars of this movie. As, as you know, you, you do a great podcast called Reels and Wheels, and... Uh, there are a lot of cars in this movie, and we're talking about a great year for cars, 1958, 1959. 
Yeah, I love late 50s, uh, especially, you know, 56, 57 was when the tail fins were peaking. 58, 59 was when we were coming off of that tail fin high and starting to decide what to do. And designs got really, uh, and also 58 was when uh, quad headlights became legal. So we got wide, low big cars and they we don't they don't get enough credit for how gorgeous they are because they're not the tail fin did you notice there was an edsel in this yeah i did me too it's on there for a split second but yeah when he's driving drunk and obviously this is on like a i don't know if it was a green screen or whatever they use to generate the effect of nearly colliding with an edsel but yeah you had an edsel in this um you had, I think, what was the, the main villain car? Was that a caddy? It's probably, the, there's a 58 Fleetwood 75 uh, that looks like looks like the culprit. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the one. And then the most distinctive looking to me was uh, towards the end at Mount Rushmore, the Continental with the quad headlights at like the weird angle. I had never seen that car before. I had to look it up. Yeah, very cool car, and and uh, I think that Continental Mark III that uh, Eva Marie Saint drives has so many of those qualities you were talking about, Sid. You know, it's low, it's wide, it's it, that car looks like it's about twenty feet wide. This is uh, this is the one with the with the stacked staggered quads. That now that uh, that's a design uh, element you just don't see very often there are very few cars that pulled that off and it, it, i mean it's obnoxious and it, it, in the best possible way <laughs> yeah. it, even the taxi cabs you know i think there's a i think you see a few ford fair lanes or or maybe a, a couple of dodges you know the just the utilitarian cars in this movie are cool it's it's just a great era for cars like you said it's it's the the tail fin at at at, at its peak possibly Heck, even the bus. I mean, like the, the, the like the, the buses back then were curvy, had swoopy lines on them. It was a, like it was just a great time. A very streamlined. You know, Raymond Lowry and you know the great designers. Uh, you just you just feel it. Uh, you know. Also, let's let's give a shout out to uh, the Mercedes two twenty. Very cool little. Uh, is would you call that a salon? I can't remember. But that's a very cool uh, European car that, of course, Cary Grant makes his drunken escape in. Um, you know, some European roadster styling uh, in that car. So, so yeah, we have mainly domestics in this movie. But if you're Cary Grant and you're going to drive drunk in the 1950s, you got to do it in a Mercedes 220 SE Cabrio. <laughs> There's just no no other vehicle will suffice. It's a perfect kind of vehicle for a New York ad executive to get sloshed in. You know, on the flip side, uh, you've got this tanker truck as a 51 white Freightliner. And frankly, the 51 white Freightliner looks almost identical to the 61 and the 71 and the 78 and the 82. <laughs> like it, That truck looks like it could be any year. True that. Well, James and Sid, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great to talk other vehicles and other things with you guys. Uh, why don't you uh, let the audience know a uh, little bit about your show and how they can find you guys? 
Sure, you can find Reels and Wheels podcast at Reels and Wheels on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, you know just about anywhere. Uh, it's uh, Reels and Wheels. Uh, just just Google us. You'll find it's the only it's it's I think it's the only podcast that really talks about movie cars um, and uh, the the way we uh, the way we talk about them. Uh, we've got some we got some good episodes coming up soon. So so definitely definitely check us out as soon as you get a chance. Um, I don't know, James, can you do better the plug than I did? I think that plug was excellent. We've got some fun stuff coming up. And uh, yeah, if you want to go back and look at our old episodes on Back to the Future, we had some great guests for back to the, for the, both of the Back to the Future episodes. Um, we've done, I think, every Mad Max movie except for the one that doesn't have cars in it. And um, We had some really good guests for uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, absolutely. That's where we met uh, you guys, and then we've also done Buckaroo Banzai with y'all as well. So, That's right. yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's what uh, got us to hook up with y'all and uh, do this uh, fun episode here. We love your podcast. We love being on it, and hopefully, we'll be on it again sometime soon. And yeah, folks, check out Reels and Wheels. It is a blast. Meanwhile, you can find the Hitchcock Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at our main site, HitchcockMinute.com. Social media is available at The Man on Washington's Nose. Don't go looking for A Man on Washington's Nose. It is a Facebook page called The Man on Washington's Nose where fans and fellow podcasters get together and we talk about this great movie North by Northwest and we're also on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute so uh, that'll wrap it up for here thanks a lot from Josh Sid James and I and uh, please join us here next time on the Hitchcock Minute who wants a Gibson goodbye Mr. Thornhill wherever you are